The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 16. While you're turning there, let me just say a special word of thanks to, um, to all those who did lead uh, in worship today, uh, as well as yesterday at the summit. As Ethan has said, our time of worship has not come to an end. Um, in this day and age, it's easy to relegate worship to a song or what happens in music Uh, But we come to this time, and our worship really just continues. I appreciate Ethan's prayer there, uh, drawing our attention to the uh, inerrant, uh, infallible, inspired Word of God. And we pray that God would speak. You don't need to hear me speak. You need to hear God speak this morning. I appreciate all those who led. Um, We had a different drummer this morning. We appreciate Ronnie uh, every single week. But uh, the Will Morrell was on drums today, and Will was one of my students uh, in, uh, from Armurchi, Georgia. Uh, it's spelled Armucci, but it's Armurchi. Um, and uh, appreciate Will being here with us and, and, uh, and playing for the Youth Summit. Well, Mark 16, uh, this day has felt like it would never get here. Uh, it's been good, but it's also been long. We've been two years in the book of Mark, and today, Lord willing, we will finish out the book of Mark. We may have to come back tonight and finish it out, but, uh, but Lord willing, today we will finish out the book of Mark. Um, and the sermon title this morning is, Now What? Now What? Um, I remember several years ago now, 13 years ago now, um, my wife and I were in a hospital in uh, eastern Kentucky, in Corbin, Kentucky, and uh, we had waited nine months to be there in that place, in that hospital. And uh, I'm telling you, labor was tough. I mean, it's, you know. <laughs> but after how many hours in labor, Lana? <laughs> Eleven hours in labor. Um, and no epidural. Uh, nine pounds, five ounce little boy uh, comes into the world. And uh, when he came out, he was a shade of skin that I had never seen before. It was sort of purple mixed with brown. And, uh, and I, I remember thinking, I don't think this kid's mine, you know. <laughs> um, but I remember the emotions welling up there with, with being a father and and looking at this nine-pound, five-ounce little boy that I was going to take home, and 
thrilled to death. I knew when I was a teenager that I wanted to be a father, and I had prayed, God, would you, by the time I'm 24 years old, God, would you let me be a father? I would love to have a child by the time I'm 24 years old. I don't know why 24, but I prayed that, and here I was, 24 years old, in the hospital, looking at my son, and um, Lana and I, I remember looking at each other at one point, and, and it was the day we were to be discharged, and we thought to ourselves, now what? You know, you, you're used to, you're, you're preparing for the delivery. You're, you're preparing for the, the pregnancy and all of that. But there comes a moment where they will kick you out of the hospital. And we're saying, no, we want to stay. And they won't let you stay. Um, and so they sent us home and we were forced with this, faced with this question, what now? Now what? What do we do? We're not ready for this. We're not ready to, to be parents on our own. Well, by the grace of God, um, Micaiah is still alive today. <laughs> I don't think he's scarred too much, you know. And, and, uh, but similarly, on a grander scale, we come to this Sunday after we have looked at the resurrection. And all of human history had led up to that point. I mean, there was this, the, the creation was pregnant with the plan of God. Mary was pregnant with the Son of God. The Messiah came and He went to the cross and He died after living a perfect life. And then three days later, He rose from the dead. We're faced with this question this morning, now what? Now what? What do we do now? We celebrate We come to Easter Sunday and we celebrate the resurrection and we celebrate the resurrection every single day of our lives. But on that day we celebrate the resurrection and we wonder, now what? And that's what this passage is about this morning. Look with me at Mark chapter 16 and let's begin reading in verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, which is... Sunday. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe him. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. We come to this passage, and there are some strange things in here. 
And you need to understand that today, um, this particular passage, I need to give this disclaimer at, at, at the first, this particular passage, 9 through 20, in the book of Mark in the 16th chapter, uh, in the most reliable manuscripts, those uh, as close to the original writings as we can get, going back all the way to our earliest manuscripts go back to the second century. Jesus lived in the first century, so very far back. We have 25,000 copies of, of manuscripts dating really close to when Jesus lived. In the earliest, most reliable manuscripts that, are, that we have, this, these verses are not, inclu- they're not included in that. Many scholars think that, uh, that this, these verses were not part of Mark's original writing, and, and they think so for good reason, and I'm in that camp. Now, before you say, I knew it, I knew he was a liberal, I knew that he doesn't believe in, in the inerrancy and the in, infallibility and the inspiredness of the Word of God. I just made up a word, inspiredness. No, I, I think there's good reason to believe that this was not part of Mark's original writing. One reason is the words, the style is very different than what Mark wrote. It's written very differently. It's as if someone picked up a pen afterwards and wrote and, and tagged it on. And, and really, I think that's what happened. Well, why would they do that? Well, think about if, if it ended in verse 8. It ends with no appearance of the resurrected Christ. Nobody's seen him yet. And it ends with the women at the tomb not saying anything to anyone after encountering the angels because they were terrified. And so probably what happened is some scribe somewhere along the way picked up a pen and said, we cannot have Mark ending this way, so let me write an ending. And let me, let me resolve some of these issues and let me tag this on here so that we can say, yes, he did appear and yes, people did tell. Now, I came to this passage and I thought, should I just end with, with verse 8 and move on to something totally different? Well, I could do that. But today, instead, what I want to do is I want to show you that while this may not have been in the original writing of Mark, it doesn't contradict anything else in Scripture. In fact, it pulls from different places in Scripture and brings all of the story together. So I'm going to preach it as it is, but I need to give you that disclaimer up front. The last thing I want is for you to walk out of here and say, you know, if, if maybe that wasn't in the Bible, what else maybe wasn't in the Bible? I can tell you that we have a very accurate, you have in your hands, your copy of God's Word, a very accurate copy of the Scriptures, a translation of the Scriptures. Uh, if, if you have, you know, one of, one of those that, that we would commend to you. I told you, we have 25,000. I'm going a little long on this, but hang with me. We have 25,000 manuscripts going back to uh, very close to the, those original writings. The next piece of literature that we have, uh, that we have manuscripts of, the, uh, Homer's Iliad. Remember that? You had to read that maybe in, in high school or college. Homer's Iliad. We have only 643 copies of manuscripts of that. And they are about a thousand years after it was written. We have 25,000 dating back as close to a century to the time of Christ. 
So don't walk out of here and say, you know what the pastor accomplished today is he accomplished for me that I'm going to doubt the rest of Scripture. You can believe your Bibles. You hear me? Don't anybody go out of here saying, I I don't know, I don't know anymore. You can trust your Bible. Do the homework, I assure you, you can. We come to this passage, there's some strange things in here. We come to a verse, you know, those that go out to all the world will be accompanied by the Spirit, and they will take up serpents and drink deadly poisons. And some of you are thinking, I knew it. He's from East Tennessee, and his wife's from Kentucky. I knew it was eventually going to come out. They're going to pull the snakes out, and we're going to start handling snakes in this place. In fact, that's what all these little black boxes are up here. If you'll hit that button, and we'll just pop those out. Aren't you glad that that verse is not prescriptive? That it's not saying that we need to pick up snakes. There's some strange things here. And, this, and that's why it's another evidence that this is probably not written by Mark. And I want to show you this as we walk through this passage together. What is this passage all about? And we'll draw from, we'll pull in all of the other textual uh, evidence for it as we walk through. First off, what now? Well, before you can have a what now, you've got to have a first then. And this is what happens in verses 9 and 12. He rose early on the first day of the week, and he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. You go down to verse 12, and he appears to two of them walking on the road. When Jesus appears to you, you don't forget it. When the resurrected Christ appears to you, you never get over it. Appear here means that he revealed or he showed himself to them. Mary Magdalene, one of those privileged to see the resurrected Christ. Those two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, privileged to see the resurrected Christ. You ever come across somebody that you were just privileged to meet? You ever bumped into somebody famous? Okay, nobody. Y'all don't get out? The other day, we were this past week, we were in Louisville, Kentucky at a conference, and we were, we were among people like John Piper and Al Mohler and all these people, just people that mean probably nothing to you, but they mean a lot to me. And uh, one day, uh, I'm in the elevator coming up to the conference, and there in the elevator with me is Trip Lee. Now, anybody over there know who Trip Lee is? Yeah, thanks, Josh. Yep, thank you. Uh, Trip Lee, this week, he is a student at Boyce College in Louisville, Kentucky, and he is a Christian rapper. He raps uh, theology. And this week, his album went to number two on iTunes out of everything. And I'm looking across in the elevator, and I'm with him. He's this kid, and I don't, he doesn't know me, but I, everything in me wanted to say, hey, uh, hey, Trip, how you doing, you know? You know, I just, I, I didn't know what I would say. I would fumble all over myself. I, I was going to get a picture for my, for my son, and, and uh, that didn't work out. I chickened out, only to have later on, put this one up. Uh, my wife bumped into him later, and, uh, and she wasn't afraid at all. And uh, so she, she just asked him, can I take a picture with you? And uh, so there's, there's Trip Lee. Uh, I think he's won a Grammy. He's, he's, uh, he's iTunes number two this week pretty important person. I have another one that's pretty important that I met while I was in high school. If, if you'll throw this one up, David. Yeah. And on, on your right, that's, that's me when I was 17 years old. 
And there is so much wrong with that picture that I can't even begin <laughs> to tell you. But when I was 17 years old and graduated high school, Dolly Parton, every, she's from my hometown. You can take it down now. That's enough. Uh, <laughs> when, when I was 17 years old and graduated from high school, Dolly Parton had this buddy program. And, the, and uh, if, if we signed up when we were going into high school with someone, and if we would commit to one another to graduate high school, if we both graduated together, then, uh, then she would give us $500 and, uh, upon graduation. And, and I thought that was a pretty big deal. I have never forgotten that. I've never forgotten meeting her. And maybe you've bumped into somebody that is super famous or a hero of yours. Maybe you have a picture with them. And you've never forgotten it. Well, think of how much greater it is that Jesus Christ, sovereign Lord, who was the sovereign Lamb, crucified for the sins of all who would ever believe, revealed Himself to you. I didn't stand there in that elevator. You know, I, there, was, there was no danger of Trip Lee saying, you know, aren't you Scott Ogle? You know, there's no danger of that ever happening. But God, the God of the universe, if you are a believer here today, has sought you out, has revealed Himself to you. Mary Magdalene here, she Seven demons were cast out of here of her by Jesus. She never got over it. She followed him to the cross. She went to the empty tomb. She is now one of the first to see him on the road. She will be a disciple from then on. These men on the road to Emmaus. You can read about it in Luke 24. In, in that passage, 13 to 31 in that passage, these men, after Jesus is raised, they don't know that he is raised yet. They still think he's in the grave. Jesus appears to them on the road, and he walked with them, and he showed them throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures how the Christ must indeed suffer and die and be raised again on the third day. And they, after meeting him on the road and finally seeing and realizing who he was, said, didn't our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road. When Jesus shows himself to you, you never get over it. For me, I was eight years old. I was eight years old, and it wasn't like I was out smoking crack or anything like that at eight years old. That would be really, really, it was a really bad eight-year-old if, if, if that's the case. But I was living a normal eight-year-old life. Played with friends. I disobeyed my parents. I tried to make good grades, but sometimes that wasn't always the case. I got in fights with friends. Punched Willie right in the eye. Did all these things. And at eight years old, at eight years old, God showed himself to me. And I remember going to my mother at eight years old and saying, I need to be saved. I I have sin in my life. And I probably didn't say it in these words, but I have sin in my life. And I need Jesus to forgive me. And at eight years old, my mom sat me down on that velour couch and led me to Christ. How about you? For you, have you met Jesus? See, because some of you sit here week in and week out, 
And you can't tell me of a time when Jesus has really shown himself to you. There are many of you across this room and you could say, yes, it was eight years old. Or yes, I was 12. Or yes, I was 32. Or whatever the case may be. But there's a lot of you in this room. You've always just gone to church. You've come to believe some things about Jesus. You've come to make the trappings of Christianity part of your routine. You've added Jesus to your life. But you've never come to the place where Saul came to when he was knocked off of his donkey and went blind. You've never came to the place where you said, woe is me, I'm undone, I am a man of unclean lips. I have a dirty heart and I need him to forgive me and prayed and trusted him alone as your only hope. Let me tell you something today. You're going to see as we go through this that if you have never come to that place, if if you've never had Jesus reveal himself to you, I'm praying that he does today. But if, if he never does, And the Bible here says that you are condemned. I don't know how else to say it any plainer. I want to afflict the comfortable today. I don't want you comfortable. I don't want you walking out of this place saying, oh, wasn't that funny when he threw the picture of Dolly Parton up on the screen. I want you to walk out of this place and say, today I met Jesus. And I will never be the same Ask yourself, are you today truly trusting in the finished work of Christ? Is he something that you've added to your life? If you have simply added Jesus to your life, then you have no life. You are just as dead now as you ever were. And you are headed to a devil's hell. Jesus is not to be added to your life. Jesus is your life, or you have no life at all. When Jesus appears, you don't forget it. You don't get over it. If you can't remember a moment, if you can't remember a time, I'm not saying you have to remember the exact time or the exact date, but if you don't remember a time when the glory of God invaded your life through the finished work of Jesus at Calvary, then you need to ask yourself, am I truly a follower? Am I truly a believer? So first off, now what? There there must first be a then moment. Jesus appears. But when God appears, not all will believe. Not all will believe. Look at verses 10 and 11. Mary Magdalene, she sees Jesus. And then she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But, they went, but when they heard it, when they heard that he was alive and had, had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Same thing with those two men on the road. When they saw Jesus and they went back and told those others, those that had been with Jesus, they did not believe their report. And you may see Jesus and you may be saved gloriously. We're not talking about here something mystical, something other than. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about God invading your life. 
through the power of the Spirit. And when that happens, you will go out and you can't help but to want to tell others. You can't help but to share. If today you're in this place and you have cancer and all of a sudden you find out from the doctors that the cancer's gone, wouldn't you tell somebody? You can't help but to tell, but you must know that not everyone will believe. And I would tell you that sometimes the ones who have been with him are the slowest to believe. Sometimes the ones that have been with Jesus the longest or been around him, around his people, are the slowest to believe. Luke 24, 11, when Mary went and told these things to them, these things seem, the Bible says, to Luke 24, 11, like an idle tale to them. Like an idle tale. You know what that made me think of? A fairy tale. Remember fairy tales? I remember, uh, go back again to when our kids were small. We don't necessarily do this anymore. Um, my son would probably give me strange looks if I wanted to read him fairy tales now. But there was a point in their lives where we would sit down by their bedside and, and we would read to them. We would read to them these fairy tales. And what was the point? Well, the point was we'd get them all snuggled up. They'd come out of, their, out of their bath time. They'd get in their bed in their comfortable pajamas, and they'd tuck them in real tight, and they would lay there, and we'd sit down on their bedside, and we'd read these fairy tales to them. And we didn't intend for them to take the, the fairy tales, the content of these fairy tales, and to live them out. You know, that, that'd be kind of weird. You know, my daughter refusing to cut her hair because she wants to be like Rapunzel. You know, Rapunzel did it, so I've got to grow my hair out, Dad. We didn't, you know, Makai, you know, try to be quick and try to jump over the candlestick, you know, and all that kind of stuff. You read fairy tales not so that they will believe and to live out the, the content of the fairy tales. They're meant to be fun and mythical and The child is there in that warm, cozy bed and they hear the soothing voice of their mother or their father and they drift off into dreamland. And I'm convinced that we have people that treat the Word of God like they do fairy tales. They come into this place and they get tucked into their nice little seat. And they expect the preacher to just open the the book, preacher. Open the book and just read us a nice little story, preacher. And they hear the story, and some of them actually do doze off. But so many of them don't ever live it out. They treat the story of Christ, the story of his disciples, the story of the church in the same manner that they treat Rapunzel or Jack be nimble, Jack be quick. They never live it out. They never apply. And what happens is we're, we're, our churches are filled with members who are asleep and treating the Word of God as if it's nothing more than a fairy tale. Not all will believe. Sometimes those that are closest to Him are the slowest to believe. Sometimes, sometimes they never believe. You and I don't ever know who will or who won't believe. You realize that? Some of you right now, if, if, I, were to, if, I, were to go, if I were to go back 30 years into history and look at your life, some of you right here would be somebody that somebody would write off. Oh, 
I'm not going to share the gospel with them. They will never come to church. They will never be a Christian. Are you kidding me? They would laugh at me, mock at me, and now look at you by the grace of God. You are where you are if you are following Christ by the grace of God for his glory. But some of you, some will never believe. It's what Luke also is talking about. Luke chapter, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, they prove that in the end, those that stand before God and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things for you? They prove that they are without the gospel and without hope. Because they come before God in the end and they say, God, look at what all I've done. The only answer that can be given upon entrance into the glory of God God, I, I come by the blood of your Son. Look at what He has done. I am unworthy except in Christ. But some of you are sitting here today, and lest you think I'm talking to your neighbor, wake up. I am talking to you. There are some of you in this room that today you're banking on what you're doing. You're banking on your church attendance. You're banking on how well you are liked in this place. And you are one of the ones who will say in the end, Lord, Lord, didn't you see all that I did? Didn't you see all the times that I went? Didn't you see how I served? Didn't you, do, didn't you see all of this, God? And what you need to do today is nothing except surrender. Turn from your sin and trust Christ alone. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Now what? You will go and you will tell, but some will not believe. But take heart, God will rebuke His own. God will rebuke His own. Look at verse 14. Afterward, He appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and He rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw Him after He had risen. And this is what happened. We see this. This is an event that happened in Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 43. And Jesus comes to them. His, his method of rebuke, He doesn't just walk in the room and say, you guys are thick-headed. But instead, he walks into the room. He walks into the room that was barred and locked in this resurrection body that is altogether different. That in itself should have been proof to them that this is, this is real. But then he stands among them, and he graciously holds out his hands to them. Put, put, put your hand here. 
feel me. You think that I'm a ghost. You think that I'm some, some figment of your imagination or some dream, some spirit come to see you. No, put your hand here. Spirits don't have flesh and bone as you see and feel that I do. Put your hand in my side. No, Peter, put your hand in my side. The Bible says there, get this, that even upon doing that, they still did not believe. And God graciously, Jesus here graciously, in rebuking His own, not willing to cast them out um, while they're in their disbelief. Can you imagine that? I mean, Jesus could have. Wouldn't you have wanted to? You've spent all of these months, these three years with these disciples, and you have, you've performed miracle after miracle after miracle. You've taught with authority. You have stood by these guys. You have modeled for them and shown them the very glory of God. And now you come to them and put your hand here. Put your hand here. And they still don't believe? Wouldn't you have wanted to say, I'm done. I'm out of here. Forget it. Jesus graciously says, do you have anything to eat? Jesus, we have broiled fish, if you're really Jesus. Give me the broiled fish. And he eats the broiled fish, not because he's hungry in that moment, but he eats the broiled fish because he wants to show them that disembodied spirits don't have bodies, nor can they eat. But he eats in front of them as proof, and he rebukes them. Aren't you glad, Christian, that every time you disbelieve God, that he doesn't cast you out? Aren't you glad for his rebuke? Aren't you thankful that he graciously stays by you? He keeps you. You better be. Every one of us in here, if every believer in this room, we could all have been cast out a long time ago. It was grace that He even appeared to us. It was grace that He brought us in to begin with. But think about all the times that you have failed Him and disbelieved Him time and time and time again. And He could have cast you out many times over. But instead, He has kept you and He rebukes you because He's shaping you into what you will be the glory of God. It's what Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 and 6 is all about. He disciplines, he rebukes every son that he loves. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that the word of God, all scripture, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. For correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Aren't you glad that He rebukes you? If He didn't rebuke us, we would all be cast out. So now what? Now, now what do we do? He's appeared to us. We'll go and tell, but they all won't believe. But we must go anyway, and when we disbelieve, He's going to lovingly rebuke us and move us on to the crux of this text. And I won't spend long here because I'm going to spend the next six weeks or so on the Great Commission. But here we see Mark's, Mark's recording of the Great Commission. 
Verse 15. Verse 15 says, Go, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Two, two little words that I want to point out to you in this, this verse, in verse 15. First of all, go into all the world. All the world. Revelation 5 verse 9 says, They sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Currently in our world there are just over 6.8 billion people on this planet living at the moment. 6.8 billion people. Of those 6.8 billion people on the planet right now, approximately, if studies are right, 5 billion of those people are lost without Christ. Of those 6.8 billion, 5 billion of them lost, 2.9 billion of them are what we call unreached. It means that not that they're just not saved, but that they have no access to the gospel. Sometimes people say, why should, why should we go there when there's obviously so much need around us? And there is a lot of need around us. There are still a lot of people lost around us. Statistics show that here in Spartanburg, Greenville area, that probably 80% or more don't go to church anywhere on Sundays. That's hard to believe, isn't it? But in America... In the United States of America, there is one church, one evangelical gospel preaching church for every 6,500 people. If we were to evangelize and reach all of America, then every church would have 6,500 people. In Canada, just to our north, in Canada, there is one church, one evangelical church for every 124,000 people. It gets even worse. The numbers get even more staggering if you look at northern Africa and the Middle East. In a 1040 window, in that dangerous part of the world, there's a whole lot less churches per people there than even in Canada or even here. If you go backwards and reduce that down, probably right here in the south, I don't have the numbers for that, but right here in the south, in the Bible Belt, I don't know if we're the belt buckled or what, but we're in the Bible Belt. It's not one church for every 6,500 people. I can, I can assure you of that. My guess would be it would probably be closer to about one for every couple thousand people. And people say to, this, to, people say to us, repeatedly, and I'll, I'll close here. I'll close after sharing this other small word. But people sometimes say, why should we go there when there's so much need around us? And that is the wrong question. Hear me. I go on record saying this, that it is not a matter of either here or there. It is a matter of both here and there. If the Bible here says, Mark says it, Matthew, Luke, John, Acts, they all say it, go into all the world, and we don't have the option to say, I will stay wherever I am comfortable. 
I will stay right here where everybody knows my name. We are called to the dangerous. We are called to go where only God can provide. And we'll come back tonight and we'll finish out and we'll look at that. Tonight I'm going to go back and I'm going to look at that little line in there about picking up snakes and all of those. You may want to come back for that. That may be a, a hook to get you back. But we don't have the option. We don't have the option to say we'll go here but not there. We must go here and there. And in the, over this next six weeks... I'm going to be rolling out for you, and I want you to perk up and hear me. I'm going to be rolling out for you, for us as a congregation, a plan as far as how we're going to go both here and there, okay? So be here over these next six weeks for that. This is a, uh, I, the body needs to be in on this. The second little word I want to show you in this is that we are to proclaim the gospel, not just any gospel. We're not to proclaim another gospel. We're not to proclaim the social gospel, for instance. You know, the social gospel is very popular. The social gospel, social justice, really says that, that we're to go where there's just great physical suffering in the world and we're to alleviate physical suffering. And, and while that, that can be good and it can be a bridge to the true gospel, if we only go to the social gospel and we stop there, then we have not gone to the gospel. We may have, we may have put a roof on their house. We may have fed them for a little while. They may have clean drinking water. We may have educated about disease and all sorts of things, but we will have done nothing to alleviate their greatest need that only Jesus Christ can meet. We're not to preach the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is flourishing in places like South America and, and other places. The, social go- the, the prosperity gospel says if you'll come to Jesus, He will give you everything that you want. You will not be sick You will not be poor. You will be happy because God wants you to be happy. That is a gospel from the pit of hell. The prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. We've got to move beyond. We've got to get this out of our head of thinking that coming to Christ simply means God wants me to be happy. It may mean that God wants you to die. It may mean that God wants you to go to the 1040 window and die. And I'm not talking about spiritually die for the Lord. I'm talking about you may lose your life in the, for the sake of the gospel. Keep in mind, and you'll hear this tonight. Come back tonight. I beg you to come back tonight. The worst this world can do to you is kill you. We are not to preach the social gospel or the prosperity gospel. We're not to preach the religious gospel. The religious gospel says you can do enough. You can be good enough. You can be kind enough. You can be generous enough. You can be concerned enough. And that's not a gospel at all. That gospel leaves you in your sin. It's where the Pharisees and those religious leaders of the day were. It's what led them to crucify Jesus. We are to preach the gospel. Now hear me, I'll close on this. I'll shut my Bible so you know I'm serious. The gospel. 
the gospel is that in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth and all that you and I know and declared there that it is good. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, who were there in the garden, who were ruling with dominion over God's creation and had un, un, um, denied access to God, great fellowship, harmony, creations in harmony, Adam and Eve, man is in harmony with God, that they decided to do the one thing God told them not to do. They rebelled against his authority over them, and therefore they were cast out of his presence, and all of creation, the harmony that once existed, was pulled apart. In this world, ever since, we've experienced death and disease Sickness and poverty, natural disaster, and every bit of it is these birth pains leading to what God is eventually going to do. God in the garden, when they sinned, immediately promised that one day he would send a man. He would send the son of a woman, the son of Mary, to crush the head of the serpent that came and tempted and led Adam and Eve astray. And on the cross, when Jesus was nailed there after living a perfectly obedient life, when he was nailed there, he died the death that you and I were meant to die. And he crushed death. He crushed sin. And one of these days, the Bible teaches, that because he rose from the dead and has now gone and been seated at the right hand of the Father, that he rules and reigns over creation, and one of these days, the Father from heaven is going to tell the Son, go, go, go get them. And in that time, all of this, all of the disease and the death and the dying, the poverty, natural disasters, all of those things will come to an end because the one who made it all good will restore it to all good. But because he is just, he could not let sin go unpunished and sent Christ to bear that punishment. And if today, you would today turn from your sin and say, God, forgive me for going my own way. I want to be saved. I need you to burst into my life. I need you, God, to be my only hope in this world. I don't want to add you to my life. I want to give up my life so that I find life in you. If today you would do that, then the Bible teaches that you today, on your way to that being creation being restored, will be forgiven, will be restored to right relationship with God. You will be given mission and purpose in this world. And one day we will, as Revelation 5, 9 said, we will gather around the throne of God with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and we will worship the glory of our God forever. But the reality is this, that if you do not believe, if you die in your sins, rejecting what God has done, you will be condemned. You will not go to heaven. You will not simply cease to exist but you will go out into eternity apart from God to a place reserved for all of those who don't have faith. You will go to hell. Today, I want to give you an opportunity. Ethan's going to come and lead us. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond. There's nothing, 
uh, magical about this time, but if today you've realized that you are sitting in your sin and you are without Christ and without hope in this world, then today I'm begging you, give your life away and trust Christ. Turn away from doing your own thing, going your own way, and say, God, you are Lord of me. Trust in what he has done and find the life that you were so afraid that you would lose. Let's pray. Lord, I pray in this moment, God, in these few moments as we close out this service, God, that we would do more than treat your word as a fairy tale, but God, that we would believe it. God, I pray that in these moments, God, I pray, God, that you'd be merciful. God, that you would show yourself to people in this room. God, would you reveal yourself to them, their need of you. God, would you radically save them today. God, would you spur us on. Show us what we have. Show us what we have in you. And God, I pray that you would spur us on not to serve you, to get your favor, but God, to serve you because we have your favor. God, move, I pray, in a mighty way for your own namesake, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.